Doing well, okay. We are continuing in our study through the confession this morning, and as I mentioned last week, we are in this new section where chapters 21 through 30 focus on God-centered living, freedom and boundaries of the Christian life. And I opened last week with some introductory stuff on chapter 21, but we're covering the doctrine of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. That's our focus. And I want to take just a few minutes and recap um, what we considered last week and where we began to kind of set, I guess, uh, the stage for what the confession actually teaches. But we talked for a long time about why Christian liberty is important. It is important, shared a few quotes from several reformers. John Calvin argued that Christian liberty is something that is principally necessary in connection with our justification. Um, it is connected to our justification and it's principally necessary for a right understanding and living out of our justification. John Owen called Christian liberty the second principle of the Reformation, which, as we considered, is extremely high um, praise or uh, a matter of importance. The second principle of the Reformation is that Christians are at liberty to judge for themselves all things that they are to believe and practice in religion and the worship of God. So, John Owen, right up there also with Calvin. Justification and Christian liberty are equal, essentially, in importance. And then Christ, uh, Samuel Bolton, Puritan, in his phenomenal work, The True Bounds of Christian Freedom, said that Christ has entrusted two great things into the hands of his church. The Christian faith and Christian liberty. And so, in this respect, if we are to properly understand the doctrine of justification and sanctification, if we are to understand the Christian life, we must understand the doctrine of Christian liberty. We also talk about its importance in relation to the entire Christian life. The reason the Reformers spoke with such high praise of these things is because it is directly related to justification, sanctification, and worship. And we looked at these passages, Galatians 5, 1, 2, 4, 1 Corinthians 7, 23, Matthew 15, 9, as a few examples of how an error here can overthrow the entire gospel. And that the apostles, time and time again, exhorted the church, stand fast in your liberty and do not submit to the yoke of bondage. We also talked historically the doctrine of Christian liberty <laughs> and kind of how it ebbs and flows over different and around different issues in church history. You recall that I said in past generations, a lot of Christian liberty has been fought over things like drinking, dancing, smoking. Of course, I just use that as a broad way of speaking of how 
um, particularly in the, in the 20th century, uh, issues like these were the main battleground of Christian liberty. I talked about in our day now, it really is over social and political stuff. And I gave COVID as a prime example of that. How many times were we told during COVID that, you know, this is loving your neighbor. If you do wear a mask or you don't, or you do get the vaccine or you don't, or you, you do cancel services or you don't, there are arguments of this is how you love your neighbor. This is how a Christian must act. And we talked about how this is how a Christian must vote. Right? Um, and a lot of the Christian liberty issues nowadays are not so much in areas of, of I don't know, entertainment or, like I said here, drinking, dancing, smoking, but are social and political. And so often we, sadly, we fight over some of these issues where we kind of argue that this is the only interpretation of the Christian life, and if you don't do this, you're in sin. And we need to be careful when we talk about these matters. We also talk about how in the 17th century, though, it was different. Really, the doctrine of Christian liberty, and it's reflected in the confession, really centers around church and religious worship. That's, that's, that's what the reformers were really dealing with. Wasn't a whole lot of arguments. I mean, there were a few things about playing cards or going to the theater, um, you know, different political views, yes. But mainly it was the state was telling the church how they ought to worship, and the Puritans, the nonconformists, that's where they got their name, were saying, you're violating our Christian liberty. So that's historically and that's reflected in the confession. So this is our review. This is what we talked about last week. Um, but ultimately, the big picture here, Christian liberty chiefly concerns our freedom in Christ from the bondage of the law, sin, Satan, and the world. That's what it chiefly concerns. It's not a doctrine we just pull out when we want to continue a practice that another Christian doesn't approve of. Chiefly concerns our freedom in Christ over these things. And our freedom, though, is for a purpose. It is in order that we might walk in true obedience, loving God and loving neighbor. Christian liberty frees us to love God and love neighbor. That's the end goal and purpose of this doctrine. So, that's all review. Today we're going to go through exactly what the confession says. It gives a definition of Christian liberty. It sets boundaries of Christian liberty. And it closes by speaking of the perversion of Christian liberty. And I'm going to jump right into this, uh, particularly this first chapter, first paragraph. I'm going to move through quickly. Chapter 21, paragraph 1, first part of that paragraph. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the rigor and curse of the law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the fear and sting of death, 
the victory of the grave and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto Him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. I want to emphasize in this first part of the paragraph, don't miss that Christian liberty is something that Jesus Christ has purchased for believers in the gospel. It's not simply granted. It's not just God being gracious. It's not just a byproduct of our salvation. Jesus Christ lived, died, rose, and ascended to secure this liberty for us. It came at a price. The Lord Jesus Christ purchased this for us. That's how precious it is. That's how beautiful it is. That's how valuable it is. That's how important it is. The confession gets it right, saying that it has been purchased for us by the gospel. So this gives us a Christ-centered, God-centered perspective right from the very beginning. It helps us see, again, this liberty is not just something, it's not something to be abused. It's not something that is trivial. It is something of utmost importance that Christ purchased for us. In this, though, the confession lists that we're free from ten things, but we're granted two things. And that's what I'm going to go through really briefly here, to kind of summarize this whole section. It consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin. If you want to understand this more, go back to chapter 6, paragraph 3. It talks about the guilt of sin earlier in the confession. We are not liable to the guilt of sin. The guilt, the, the feeling of shame, the, the, the understanding that you are under the wrath of God, uh, the guilt that, that often causes us to spiral downward into more and more sin. Self-hate, self-disgust. Um, um, this is things that we are free from in the Gospel. We are not guilty in Christ of our sins. The guilt has been borne by our Savior. We are free from it. And that's a very, very powerful, I think, particularly in counseling, pastoral counseling, or just regular, just friendly counseling and discipleship. Guilt is such a destroyer. Going back to the Gospel and seeing Christ has freed us from that. I no longer bear the guilt of my sin. Yes, I still sin. And yes, there are times when I feel shameful and ought to feel shameful and guilty for our sins, but we confess those sins. 1 John 1, 9, we know that He is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us. And we are free. We are free. Secondly, we're free from the condemning wrath of God. His anger has been turned away. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Romans 1.21 Against all unrighteousness, we are free from God's anger towards us. In Christ, God is no longer angry with you. He is no longer angry with you. You can sin and bring on fatherly displeasure 
but that is different than wrathful anger. We are free from the condemning wrath of God. We're free from the rigor and curse of the law. The rigor and curse of the law. Well, the rigor, the law requires personal, perfect, perpetual obedience. It does. Personal, you have to obey. Perpetual, forever. Right? Perfect, with no bend and no break. We're free from that rigor. We're free from the curse of it. Cursed is the one who does not obey all the things written in this book. That's what the law says. And we're free from that. The law is a guide. The law still instructs. But it has no curse. It has no bite. It's the law of liberty, James says. The law of liberty. Beautiful statement. We are free from the curse of the law. We're free in their being delivered from this present evil world. We're no longer a citizen of this world that is passing away. We are a citizen of heaven. We are no longer just in bondage to going along with what everybody else is going along with in this world. We are free from that. We have been delivered from that. We're no longer subject to that. We're free from the bondage of Satan in the same respect. Before Christ, Satan ruled you. He did. If you're here and you're not a believer, Satan is Lord over you. He is stronger than you and you do what he wants you to do. Ultimately. That's been broken. The dominion of sin in the same respect. Before Christ, people are slaves, enslaved to this world. They are enslaved to Satan. They are enslaved to the flesh. The dominion of sin. You can't even control your own actions ultimately or your own desires outside of Christ. They are stronger than you are. But in Christ, we've been free from this dominion. We are slaves to sin no longer. We are delivered from the evil of afflictions. The the language here, note carefully, not afflictions in general. We know that we still experience afflictions, but from the evil of afflictions. What does that mean? Think of what Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis 50. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Every, the Heidelberg Catechism, every sad providence, every sad thing that happens to us in this world, the Lord means it for good and uses it for good in the lives of His children. Outside of Christ, suffering and affliction is evil. Those things aren't worked for good in those who are outside of Christ. They could be from uh, the anger of God. They could be the judicial hardening of God. But in Christ, afflictions push us to God. They drive us to Him. 
So we've been delivered from the evil afflictions. We know that our afflictions are for our good and for His glory because of the freedom that Christ has won for us. We are free from the fear and sting of death. We don't, of course, experience this perfectly. We still many times can fall into a fear of the sting of death. But ultimately, 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your sting? We grieve, 1 Thessalonians, we grieve as they, we do not grieve as they who have no hope. Right? We know that death does not have the last word. We're free from that, 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 that just overwhelming dread of, of dying in what's beyond the grave because of what Christ has won for us. The victory of the grave. We're free from the victory of the grave. We know that, that death will not have the last word. We know that we might go down into the ground as dust we will return, but ultimately, because of Christ, we will be raised again. We will conquer that dust because He has conquered that dust. We are free from everlasting damnation. In this sense, of course, not just death itself, not just the sting of death, not just victory over the grave. Unbelievers, when they die, it's not just that they die and they never rise again. It's that they die and they enter into everlasting damnation. Punishment. Hell. The just repayment of their sins. And in Christ, we have been freed from the powers of hell. Not only will we rise again, but we will rise to life. We will not rise and suffer in everlasting damnation. Those are the ten things that we've been freed from, the confession points out. But it also gives two positives as well. This liberty consists in our free access to God. We have immediate, perpetual access to the throne room of heaven, to the presence of God, because our brother and our mediator and our Savior, the man Christ Jesus, is in the presence of God, and we in Him, and of course through Him, the Lord hears our prayers. So, in, in a small part here, you can probably hear the confession um, in a sense like nudging Roman Catholicism. You don't need an earthly priest. You don't need an earthly mediator. You don't need Mary and the saints. This freedom that Christ has won for you, you have free access to God. Directly in the name of Christ. And, and that, brethren, I mean, we could stop right here and extol the beauties of that for the next hour, or the next week, really. What a tremendous privilege it is that we have access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Christ has won for us and gives to us in the gospel. And it's freedom because we don't need an earthly priest. We don't need earthly merit. We don't need heavenly merit. We don't need the, or, or I should say, uh, the merit of the saints. We need the merit of Christ. 
It's free, free access to God. Think of how that frees you up not to be enslaved to the bondage of other people. Which is what the confession is aiming at. And then secondly, we're free to yield obedience to Him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. We obey the Lord, we obey the law out of love. Out of love. Not out of fear. Not as though one misstep and God's going to squish us like a bug. Not as though one misstep and He's going to bring an assortment of earthly afflictions to teach us our lesson. Not out of a dread that we're going to mess up. Not out of a dread um, that we're not going to um, earn or receive particular blessings. But a childlike love. Gratitude. Joy. Trust with a willing mind. This is what Christian liberty frees us to. We're going to get to this in the second paragraph. But obedience, any obedience that isn't out of this childlike love is obedience that's still in bondage. We've been free to offer obedience knowing that He's pleased with us. He receives our uh, obedience um, in Christ as a father does a child. And so... This liberty results ultimately when you have it, when you possess it, it leads to obedience. It doesn't lead to license. It doesn't lead to living however we want to live. This obedience leads to childlike, excuse me, this free liberty leads to childlike obedience. Um, John Owen, this is the fundamental privilege of the gospel. That believers in all their holy worship have liberty, boldness, and confidence to enter with it and by it into the gracious presence of God. In our worship, in our access, in our obedience, fundamental privilege of the gospel, we enjoy this liberty. Um, I'll take questions in a second. I just want to finish this paragraph. It has this brief note about the Old Testament. All these things were common also to believers under the law for the substance of them, but under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged. And their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. So in substance, all believers of all time enjoyed this freedom in some respect. Um, but this is enlarged under the New Testament because the ceremonial law, the burden which uh, Peter says our fathers could not bear, has been removed from us. And we have a greater boldness in the name of Christ and through the full or pouring out of the Holy Spirit um, than believers did in the Old Testament. It's not like believers did not have the Old Testament, excuse me, not like Old Testament believers did not have the Holy Spirit, but they did not have it in the measure in which we do, nor did they have the revelation of the mystery 
of the gospel like we do, which of course leads to greater boldness and um, um, leads to a a better understanding and, and a greater sanctification in the Christian life. So it's just a statement to say, this is greater, but it's not entirely new. All believers enjoyed this liberty, but we enjoy it in greater measure. All right, so the summary is in sin that we are slaves to sin, Satan, the flesh, and the world. We are bound also by the law and its bondage to its rigors, its demands, and its curse. All of this brings the just wrath of God upon us in many temporal and eternal afflictions. But Jesus Christ has purchased freedom for us over all these things and has granted us eternal life and present access to God so that we're now free to offer Him childlike obedience and gratitude. Any questions or comments on this first paragraph? Remember, the confession is going to make an application of it next. Cody? Yeah, I'm glad you pointed it out that way. I think of the golden chain of redemption in Romans 8, uh, 29 through 30, right? In the sense that uh, we've been called justified, uh, sanctified, glorified, all, all of the things uh, from beginning to end. And it, it falls under this liberty that Christ... And I think that's fitting that it comes at this point in the confession, too. So I talked about justification and sanctification, right? And now it's kind of summing everything up and saying, this is how free you are. Uh, from beginning to end. I like that. Mark? how you put that because it puts the focus on Jesus Christ right not on us 
And even when we talk about Christian liberty, it's like it's God-centered, it's Christ-centered and from every respect. And it's not just focused on us. Karen? Well, as I'm going to get to in a second, those things are relevant to the doctrine of Christian liberty. What I'm saying is primarily what they were focused on in the 17th century was the Roman church encroaching on Christian liberty. Because the Roman church not only dictated all the things of worship, but they also dictated your life in ways that, that went beyond legitimate authority. And that was the battle they faced, and over the years it's just morphed. Um, it's all related in some respect. No, they're not. That's why I began with the poll last week. <laughs> You're right, and we need to appreciate, I think, the balance of the reformers in this respect. And I think the second paragraph really gets into that question. So uh, let's, let's jump to 21.2. My professor in seminary exhorted us as students when I took his class on the confession. He said, memorize this passage, this paragraph. It's one of the most important paragraphs in the Christian life and in church ministry. And it's beautiful. And uh, I exhort you to the same. God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to His Word or not contained in it. So that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit, implicit faith, an absolute and blind obedience, is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. So, again, the doctrine summarized in paragraph one, now it's applied. And the question is who is Lord of the conscience? just read it have you forgotten already who is Lord of the conscience God alone the emphasis being on alone no one may intrude upon God's domain God is Lord of your conscience. Nobody else. James 4.12 There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Romans 14.4 Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. One of the most important doctrines, one of the most important paragraphs, because it's so practical. And I will say, it's the cause of much division in the church. Because we pass judgment on other people. Because we try to be the conscience of other people. But this needs some fleshing out. What does this mean? If somebody is committing adultery, can they pull these passages out and say, who are you to judge me? Well, of course not. 
So let's, let's, let's break this down and see what, we, what we're talking about. God alone is Lord of the conscience. What are we free from? We are free from the doctrines and commandments of men. This refers to human teachings and human rules. The chiefly in view here is the Pope, Rome, the state church, telling you how you must live your life, telling you what is obedience and what is not obedience, telling you what is worship and what is, wor- what is not worship. Now, it's not saying that there is no legitimate church authority. Uh, Jason asked this question last week. Well, doesn't the church have some authority? Don't they say, like, we meet at 10.30 a.m. for worship? Is that a doctrine and commandment of men? Well, yes, it is. But we're not making that law rule as a necessary component of the Christian life, as in, you know... You must follow this or there is no salvation outside of, outside of this, right? Or you're going to be put under church discipline kind of thing. No, it's saying that tradition and beliefs and rules and commandments that are contrary to his word, which should be obvious, but are not also those that are not contained in his word. I've got to move quickly. I want you to think back here to paragraph 6 of chapter 1. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in Holy Scripture. That's what this phrase is pointing back to. It's either explicit in Scripture, thou shalt not commit adultery, right? I mean, you don't have freedom to commit adultery. Or necessarily an unavoidable inference from Scripture. So we're talking about something that isn't explicitly called a sin in Scripture, but can be necessarily inferred from it. Maybe an example is, am I free to do LSD? I mean, this is a ridiculous example. There's no command in Scripture that says do not do LSD. But it is, of course, a necessary inference. It is absolutely necessary as an appendant to drunkenness, lack of self-control, things that destroy the body, right? So we're free from things um, that are not either set down in Scripture or an unavoidable inference from it. Some examples of this. Um, again, Rome is in view, transubstantiation, that the bread and wine turn into the body and blood of the Lord. Purgatory, not a doctrine in Scripture. The Pope is the head of the church. The Immaculate Conception, right, that, that Mary was born without original sin, that she's co-mediator, that the, her merit and the merit of the saints plays a role in our justification or, or our glorification. So these are some easy examples in relation to the church of things that are not in Scripture. Commands that might be good inferences, but are not necessary inferences. 
They might be wise. They might put fences around the law in a helpful manner, but they're not necessarily contained. Eating food at sacrifice to idols might be one example that we see in Scripture. Observance of Old Testament or special feast days, Romans 14. Alcohol consumption. Many matters of wisdom in Proverbs. Proverbs says things like don't ever um, co-sign alone. Using today's vernacular. Well, is it a sin to co-sign alone? Um... (laughs) I'm going to argue that it's not what Proverbs is saying. Proverbs is not law. Proverbs is wisdom. Guidance. It may be wise for you never to co-sign alone, but is that a sin? This is what we're talking about here. We're talking about things that might be good inferences, but are not necessary. And that's where we run into trouble. We can say, you know, it's a good inference that, that, you know, I had... And one Christian told me one time, like, that, that, you know, he refused to see any rated R movie. Doesn't matter what's in it, doesn't matter what, no rated R movie. And I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. That's a good inference. Is that a necessary inference? I'm going to say no. It's not. So we need to be careful here. Uh, alcohol consumption is an easy one. The, the Bible warns about al- alcohol many times. It says it warns about drunkenness and what a tremendous sin it is. We look at our culture and we see that alcohol has destroyed lives over and over and over again. Well, because of this, does that mean then it's a sin to partake? That might be a good inference. And if you f- feel so inclined, To make that decision for yourself. That is a good thing to do in your conscience. Is that necessary so that now you turn to judge other people? No, it's not. So, explicit or an unavoidable inference that this is sin. Chiefly tied to the moral law. That's what we're talking about here. So, in this respect... Liberty is destroyed, the confession says, when we believe man-made doctrines. It's destroyed. We destroy what Christ purchased by obeying man-made rules. We destroy what Christ purchased. Strong language. They destroy Christian liberty. They betray liberty of conscience. They betray reason also. And this is because the confession mentions this implicit faith. I got to move quickly. Implicit faith. Who knows what implicit faith is? Have you ever heard that term before? Jeremiah, you're shaking your head no. You're tracking with me. Good. I like that kind of feedback. Implicit faith is something that the Roman Catholic Church um, speaks about. Christians are to believe whatever the Roman Church believes even if one does not know it personally. So this is blind obedience to the church, which is not obedience out of conscience. So it's like, well, I I don't really know. I just believe what the church believes. I believe what they tell me to believe. And I obey what they tell me to obey. 
Doesn't matter if he's talking about the Roman Catholic Church or he's talking about the Reformed Baptist Church. That destroys liberty of conscience. That you obey or believe simply because the church tells you to. Or another Christian tells you to. I don't personally feel like this is a sin, but I'm going to obey this simply out of... Because who, who it is is telling me this. That, Mark? So, I mean, for example, because this, this relates to something I do about a lot of issues, just things that, because there are a lot of uh, pieces of doctrine or things that I don't feel confident enough. I don't feel like I've done enough research to understand. I feel like I don't have a position. So, for a lot of these things, I tend to default to either something you've told me or something my father has told me. Because I don't have, I feel like I don't have an opinion of my own yet. I tend to rely on those I find wiser than me in my life. Is that that, that would be all right? Yeah, of course. It's I would say it's it's okay. Uh, we're not talking about doctrines that maybe you're not an expert in. We're talking about in the sense of like you make no effort or you have no care, and you think that the merit or the importance is just in blindly receiving whatever it is somebody has told you. Um, it, you know, like I mean, we talk about the Trinity here. If we did a poll <laughs> on the Trinity, uh, there we would find a lot of people who are probably not experts, and yet they believe what our confession says. Um, that's not a blind obedience. It's just like, I believe what the church believes, and through my belief that I receive the merit of that kind of thing. That, that's a great question. Um, but you think about this. This is no longer childlike obedience. It's putting ourselves back under the law, ultimately. Because we think the merit is in the favor, whatever it is, is in believing or doing whatever it is that we're supposed to believe and do. You're obeying not because you're offering to Him sincere, loving obedience, but you're obeying because of compulsion out of somebody else. I just have to. That's bondage. Putting ourselves back under bondage. And it destroys liberty of conscience. Um, This is very practical for church life. It limits pastoral and church authority. Without a doubt, it's a safeguard against pastoral abuse. It's a foundation for peace and unity and love in the body of Christ, knowing that before the Master, each one stands or falls. It's not my job to judge other people, ultimately, on matters that are indifferent. It's not my job to get them to obey my conscience on matters that are indifferent. And it teaches us to strive to obey and to get our neighbor to obey out of conscience, out of love for God, not out of compulsion or pressure from other people. I got to close with this. This is the perversion of Christian liberty. They who, under any pretense of Christian liberty, practice any sin or cherish any sinful lust. They thereby pervert the main design of the grace of the gospel to their own destruction 
and they wholly destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is it being delivered out of the hands of all of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our lives. Again, another way that liberty is destroyed, using it to sin or to cherish a lust. They destroy the grace and freedom of the gospel because that grace and freedom is that we might live in holiness and righteousness. Some examples. Trying to get as close to sin as possible. Walking directly into temptation. Giving an appearance of evil. Right? I have freedom to... I I don't know. Enjoy an alcoholic beverage. And so I'm secretly using it in an abusive way. I have freedom to enjoy this type of media. So I'm, I'm enjoying it in a way that is leading, that is fueling my lust or leading me to tem- into temptation and sin. Right? We can talk about many examples. Jill? We also um, use the uh, operation Christ to do whatever it is and also sometimes rebel against and your parents also do sin. Absolutely. I, I freed you Christ, so I rebel against my parents' authority. Well, yeah, so or. Yes, absolutely. Um, rebelling, yeah. Uh, using your freedom to violate the law of God in other ways, for sure. Um, I mean, even saying, like, using your freedom, well, the church can't tell me when to, when to worship. Like, 10.30 a.m., I, I really want to worship at noon. I mean, this is a ridiculous example. But you're throwing off authority and saying, my freedom is to worship whenever you can't set man-made rules over me, and so you have no rules whatsoever. Um, you're violating another kind of sin in that, in that sense um, in, in the name of liberty. And um, yes, it is assuming that um, your liberty is in the context of the entire Christian life, whether that be the authority. But another aspect would be love for neighbor as well. Right? It is not a sin if we read the New Testament to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but it is if you eat it in a way that destroys the faith of your brother. Then it becomes a sin. So it's not always just a matter of can I do this or can I not do this. So the goal and purpose of our liberty, never to be used to trample on others, never be used as a license. It is to help and aid and promote and free us to love God and neighbor. It helps us love God because it helps us uh, what he, it tells us what we know what pleases him and what obedience he requires and helps us love others because we're free to look out for their own well-being above our own so i uh, i've got to conclude with that i'll leave those up there if you want to read that um, the joy that christ has purchased to lead us into obedience never as a cloak for sin um, i gotta close in prayer unfortunately we don't have time for questions but feel free to come up afterwards if you have more questions let's uh let's go before the lord